When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Social Security is one of the most complex and confusing federal programs. With over 2,700 rules, it's no wonder that we're confused about when and how to start collecting and who to turn to for help. Welcome to Social Security Answers from the Experts, hosted by Martha Shedden. In this podcast series, Martha meets with professionals to provide you with the answers to questions about this most important financial decision. And now, here's your host, President and co-founder of the National Association of Registered Social Security Analysts, Martha Shedden. Hi, everyone. Welcome. I'm Martha Shedden, and I am here today with Mark Holbert. Mark is a seasoned financial expert with over four decades experience analyzing investments and market trends. Adept at translating complex investment concepts into easy to understand conclusions as a columnist, newsletter editor, frequent guest on TV and radio, and leader of investment seminars and workshops. Mark has written for the New York Times, USA Today, and for MarketWatch, among other outlets. So welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thank you very much for joining me. Well, my pleasure, Martha. Thank you. Um, first of all, tell us how you came to work in finance and specifically not only analyze investments, but also write about them for these different publications. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So it, it was uh, out of grad school. I graduated from grad school in 1979. I attended one of these investment seminars, which used to be the major way in which people would hear about these investment news efforts. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine today in the internet world that uh, you don't really need to actually physically show up at an investment conference to get exposed. But this was the granddaddy of the investment conference world. It was in October of 79. I think there were something like 10,000 investors there. And it was right at the height of the gold mania, you may recall. Um, and people would line up between talks uh, there was a bank of payphones. People were lining up 10 deep to call their broker and make trades. And so the, the level of energy and excitement was great. And I had the reaction, which I think almost everyone else did, is that these advisors who were telling people to go buy this or sell that couldn't all be right because they were contradicting each other. But they all would claim that if you'd only been smart enough to follow them over the previous year, you would all be rich. And so the, the reaction, which I think is a very normal one, is wouldn't it be good to have uh, a service that would keep track of their performance and hold their feet to the fire? And so that's what I did. It's in concept, no more difficult uh, or uh, complex than that. I simply did what they told me to do. So I set up, uh, this was very early of the computer age, but I was able to set up a, you know, a simulation of the trading environment on my computer. And I got data feeds from all the exchanges and set up portfolios according to what these newsletters were telling the clients to do. And then I just traded those portfolios. I used prices that prevailed on the day that an anonymous subscriber would be able to actually 
act on the advice rather than use the price that prevailed when the editor said that he or she first thought about it. And so it was realistic from that point of view. And I took bid-ask spreads into account. I charged discount brokerage commissions. Um, So I let the chips fall where they may. And so that's what I started doing. My first issue of the newsletter was in the summer of 1980. And so I've been uh, doing this in one form or another now for uh, Gollum in my 40, well, starting my 42nd year um, this month. I, uh, I was tracking uh, up until 2016, about 200 separate newsletters that had between them about 600 model portfolios. Um, over the years, I won't go into the details, but when the newsletter had been acquired eventually by Dow Jones, and Dow Jones uh, decided they didn't want to continue to be in the newsletter tracking business. So they shut down my tracking operation, but they still wanted me to continue writing for them. And so for the last five years, I've devoted basically 100% of my energy to writing about the investment themes that basically I learned about in the prior 35 years. So that's what I've been doing. And that's answering your question of how I got to writing about this. Yeah. So you weren't really writing about it that much, except for the newsletters until the last five years. Is that correct? Well, no, that's not entirely the case, though. That you can see, I can see how that question would come up from what I said. So I first started writing columns uh, in 1986, believe it or not, and that was for Forbes magazine. I wrote for them for a little over a decade, and then I wrote for the New York Times. And then in 2002, uh, CBS Market Watch bought my newsletter, so I started writing for them, and they in turn got purchased by Dow Jones in 2005. And so I've been writing for uh, the Wall Street Journal and Barron's in addition to Market Watch. Uh, ever since. Wow. Uh, well, you certainly have a lot of experience to, that you can share with us. Um, without getting too bogged down uh, in too much detail, what investment trends are you seeing for soon-to-be retirees or those who have retired in our audience that they should be aware of? Is there anything that may surprise us out there? Well, that's such the $64,000 question, isn't it? And I guess there are two major themes I would stress in in response to that question. One is the future is far more unknowable than any of us know. And I think that's such, in one sense, a trite conclusion. Um, But it's something that we may acknowledge sort of in passing and then continue on with our lives as though the investment world is more predictable than it really is. And I would say, looking back over the 40 plus years I've been doing this, that it really is far more unpredictable than any one of us could could imagine. And I think we need to take that into account. Uh, it, it translates into a great dose of humility in terms of predicting where the markets are going and building a very large buffer or margin of error into any of our retirement plans, because we're planning for now much longer retirements than uh, ever before, and where the markets will will go over the next 20, 30 plus years have a huge impact uh, on our, uh, our retirement standard of living. So lesson number one, I think, is just, you know, step back whenever you think you know what the market will, will do in the future. So that's Lesson one and secondly, which related to it, is that insofar as there are any regularities in the world, the markets over the next 20 or 30 years are almost certainly 
going to produce a lower rate of return than we've seen over the last 20 or 30 years. That's a big adjustment that we have to take into account. I mean, for example, there are many target date funds that retirement retirees have in their portfolio, or just in general, any of the uh, financial planning assumptions that we'll make based on history are fraught with peril because they're based on one of the most extraordinary periods in U.S. market history. I mean, uh, I mean, 30, 40 years ago, in fact, it was in 1981 that interest rates were, I mean, the 10-year yield was what, 16% plus? Yeah, I remember that. It was- and it comes down to what now, well, at one point it was below, last year it was down below 1%. Mm-hmm. And that's an extraordinary period for bonds. Well, even if interest rates aren't going to go back to 16%, and of course, lesson number one is we have no idea, but I don't think it's likely it's going to go back to 16%. But even if it stays constant at 1% for the next 20 or 30 years, bonds will only produce a total return equal to its initial equal to their initial yield, which is to say 1%. So the extraordinary bull market in bonds over the last 40 years, we can guarantee almost, again, <laughs> I need to have my own dose of humility and say yeah. <laughs> no, predict anything for sure, but I'd say it's almost guaranteed we're not going to see that kind of return. And the same way with the stock market. Um, uh, you know, Who knows whether valuations will go even higher, but right now PE ratios or the Schiller PE, which is a different way of looking at the relationship between price and earnings, are all at well, well above, not just above average, but well above average levels. And if you go back in history, it's unlikely that the market's going to produce huge returns in the wake of those kind of valuations. In order for us to have similar returns for stocks for the next 20 or 30 years, as we've seen for the last 20 or 30 years, valuations would have to go up beyond not just a little bit, way beyond anything that's ever been seen in U.S. history, which isn't to say it couldn't happen, but I think that requires a huge leap of faith. And so I think we need to put into our financial plans the assumption that we're going to have lower returns going forward. Better to be conservative about it. Well, that's right. I mean, indeed, the economists will tell you, this is nothing particularly original on my part, but Interest rates reflect growth opportunities in the economy, and lower interest rates mean that there's less growth potential in, in the economy. And, uh, mm-hmm. and those reduced growth prospects have to translate throughout uh, the financial markets. I don't see any other way around it. Yeah. Um, recently, you wrote an article for Market Watch about the current retirement crisis isn't easy to pin down because, and you said, and I'll quote this, the paradoxical situation exists because of how we try to assess the state of retirement finances. We all too often focus on the average retiree, even though this hypothetical average individual doesn't exist. Financial preparation for retirement varies so widely that this average creates more confusion than insight. So I can see how that's probably true, then the question is, if someone can't rely on the averages to make uh, personal decisions, what concrete steps can they take to weed out this confusion for their own choices? Right. Well, you know, that's a great question. And again, because there's such wide variety, I don't think there will be one answer to the question. So, for example, if you look at the uh, Vanguard every year has a wonderful publication called How America Saves, and it has enormous amount of data. And I 
last I looked, I think the average 401k balance was just over $100,000, right? So then people will say, okay, well, if you have a 401k balance of that amount and you make various assumptions about the markets, this is how much you'll have to work with. But it turns out that there's incredible variation around that average. The median 401k balance at Vanguard, as opposed to the average, is a lot lower, which is to say that you have a very few people with incredibly large 401ks and lots and lots of people with very little. In fact, last I looked, I believe the amount of 401ks at Vanguard below $10,000 was something, it was in the order of 20 to 30%. It was like a quarter or more of their universe, which is you know, again, that's just at Vanguard, and some people have 401ks at Fidelity and Vanguard in a number of different locales. But on the other hand, Vanguard's database is like four or five million retirees or potential retirees with 401ks. So it's going to be relatively representative. So the advice one would give to somebody with a 401k of $10,000 is going to be far different, as you can imagine, than to somebody who has a 401k of a million dollars or more. And that's where I think, again, and I'm guilty of this, I love statistics, and so I'm always focusing on numbers, but you can look at the average and miss, you know, miss all of the, uh, the really important detail that make all the difference. I mean, the, I used an analogy in that column that you referred to is it's the man who has his feet in the freezer and his head in the, uh, the oven and on average feels just fine. And <laughs> I think that's what's going to be uh, what we have to remember. Another example of uh, of how one would approach this is to look at how important Social Security is for people with those small 401ks. In fact, um, I don't have the percentage right off the top of my head, but it's a substantial percentage of retirees for whom 90% or more of their retirement income comes from Social Security. Right. So... I could write a column for retirement finance that looks at all these investment trends and what the future may like be what the future may be like. That's all well and good, but for all of those, I mean, again, it's a substantial percentage of retirees for whom the investment world's prospects will have no difference, no effect right, on their right. retirement standard of living. Yes, and that that's so true. Um, so what are that ties in with my next question, because you gave some um, statistics about retirees, 35% uh, think they are prepared, only 35% think they're prepared, one in four are worried they, they outlive their money. I've heard all these um, statistics, 59% retire earlier than they planned. Uh, many of those are because of health issues and 16% work part-time. So what are people doing wrong when they handle their social security decisions and retirement funds that they still have to work part-time? And what are some decisions they can make that, that help them not be in that 16%? Right. Fair enough. I mean, and this is I'm getting into your wheelhouse where you know a lot more about some of these things than I do. But for what I know, is that almost universally, if you can wait as long as possible before declaring Social Security, that's not a bad thing to do. And in fact, you get a guaranteed return of 8%. And I can tell you that I don't think there's any chance that over the next 10 years or whatever period of time you choose that the markets with, let's say, a 60-40 or some diversified portfolio are going to produce 
a guaranteed return of 8% above inflation, really. So that's an incredible return and it's guaranteed. So I think anything you can do to avoid that is, is a good thing. So you mentioned working part-time. Is the longer you keep working, that allows you to postpone the declaration of, uh, of, uh, of when you have to start taking Social Security. You mentioned, you know, health reasons being one of the reasons why some people have to declare earlier. And, you know, that's one of the heartbreaks of those health issues is that there's little you can do if you have them. Though I just uh, I was reading the uh, there's a great resource the, the Boston College has a Center for Retirement Research. And they have a number of fascinating papers. One they just posted uh, this summer, which is interesting, was out of the Netherlands, where they noted that people who work longer tend to uh, be healthier. And uh, the question is, what direction does that causality go? Is it that people who are less healthy have to retire early? That makes sense. But what if it's the other way around? And they were able to exploit some very interesting statistical properties. There was a change in the tax law as well as some of the retirement benefits laws in the Netherlands that you're able to, uh, to measure this. And they found that when you do work longer, you actually have better health outcomes. So uh, I'd say, you know, I mean, it's not going to be a, you know, it's not going to be a panacea if you have some terrible illness. I don't want to be a no, Pollyanna no. about this, but no. nonetheless... Um, that's another reason why you may want to uh, to work longer. There's another study that I wrote a column about a couple of years ago, and the citation I will not get, so I won't even try to, to mangle it. But uh, uh, a professor uh, at uh, one of the uh, Ivy Leagues um, looked at, uh, there was a change, as you know better than I, but back in the late 50s, they made the change to allow for early declaration of, uh, of Social Security benefits. So that provided a, an one of these events that allows statisticians to see what effect that one change had. And it turns out that uh, it, it happened among men, interestingly enough, not women, but men the first year that uh, that went into effect, who declared at 62, had a higher mortality rate. And not just a little bit, it was significant. And what the author, the, the economist believes was going on is that you lose your purpose in life somewhat and you do, perhaps then uh, you encourage uh, unhealthy behaviors. You maybe eat, you sit on the sofa, watch TV, you may smoke more than you should. I don't know what it is. You can speculate a number of possibilities of some lifestyle issues, but that would point in the same direction. So, and these go way beyond investments. So this is uh, not my wheelhouse at all to talk about behavioral aspects, but I think it points in the same direction. Oh, and I, I completely agree. I um, I think a lot of people I see claim Social Security uh, early or they, quote, retire at 55. And then they find that that really, what are they going to do? Um, so luckily, there's some strategies for Social Security that they can change their mind. But um, it's astonishing that because that availability to claim early at 62, like you said, is there, the vast majority of, of retirees do. Um, I think that's changing though, which is a good thing. So I think people well, you know, get an idea that they should wait if possible. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, so this feeds into a, sort of tangentially the whole fire movement, you know, so the, yes. the idea if you're gonna retire early and 
MarketWatch has been running a number of columns of sort of autobiographical reflections of people who, now, first of all, it's rare to get so much money by age 40 that you can really retire for the rest of your life anyway. But among those few who have, I'd say the majority of the articles I've read, you, you know, a skeptic could say, well, the editor chose it to, uh, to uh, prove a point. I don't know. I don't know whether that is the case yeah. at all. I'm just wondering. But nonetheless, the majority of the articles from these people said that they were bored out of their mind and they didn't know what to do. And they went back, you know, they may have picked a different job and that's good and may have found a new chapter in their life and that's good. But the idea that somehow we're going to lie on a beach for the next 40 or 50 years is, uh, you know, it's good for a month or two. And then what are you going to do? Yeah. Well, that's so funny because my son is very much that way. Uh, he's in his mid thirties and, but he's not going to quit working. He, I think the appeal is the ability to be flexible and and be able to do what you want to do, which is okay if you have hobbies and and different things to do. Um, but it, and then that gives you the flexibility if you need to work longer, you can, and yeah. you're not as reliant on an early claiming of social security. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, what uh, do you feel the Fed is making things better or worse? for retirees with the 2020 CARES Act? Oh, well, boy, that's a complicated have, question, isn't it? Do you have an, a short opinion on that? Well, I uh, I think the answer is both. Of course, you know, talk about going out on a limb, right? But the uh, I think, and this is where somehow our political debate has become so polarized that uh, we can't even admit that. I think it doesn't matter whether a Democrat or Republican had been in office, they would have done the same thing. I mean, if you look back in the financial crisis, we mm-hmm. threw what at the time seemed like an unprecedented amount of money at the economy and probably turned it around. And uh, um, it looks like we did the same thing uh, in 2020, but it was entirely different political parties that were in power. And you know, the best analogy I can think of, uh, my wife's a clinical psychologist, and she says that one of the greatest predictors of whether people will have a panic attack is whether they've had a prior panic attack. And so what that means clinically, she tells me, is that you need to avoid at all costs your client having a panic attack, including, she's not a big fan of drugs, but including whatever something anti-anxiety medication that keeps people from having that panic attack. Because once they've had that first one, then it's, uh, it's much harder to treat over time. And it seems like using that very clumsy analogy, I mean, the, uh, the economy was in, you know, already beginning of stages, but a real full-on panic attack. Um, yeah. And it is hard to put the pieces back together when you completely, uh, everything falls apart. And so yeah. at that point, it's better to do anything, including a very inefficient way of doing it. Throwing money at something is probably not the most efficient way of, of overcoming it. But if it keeps you from having that full-on panic attack, it might be better off th- than nothing. And so I think the perfect's the enemy of the good. There's, in retrospect, we have many, many criticisms, everyone. I say we, but I mean, I'm one of them, but of how some of those pieces of legislation were put into effect. I think there was probably a lot more fraud than there should have been. And uh, there could have been more safeguards, but we didn't have, we didn't have unlimited time to figure that out. And uh, so in that sense, I think it's, it's more good than bad. I I think all of us in the same 
position as the uh, monetary and fiscal authorities in Washington would have done the same thing. Now, whether you do the same thing now that we're off the, you know, we're, we're away from that panic attack, I think there are some better and worse ways in which one can incentivize a return to a productive economy. But that's a, a much broader, uh, broader discussion. But that, that was such a uniquely historical situation we just went through. Isn't it, though? Yeah. So, you know, I'm surprised we came out of it as well as we did, really. Well, that's right. We did come out of it extraordinarily well. I mean, to think about, I mean, if we, back in the dark days of March of last year, to think that the market would more or less double over the next 18 months yeah. is, is just extraordinary. Crazy. And, there, and I think that... See, that worries me because that's an extraordinary return. And I think there it's a reflection of perhaps uh, a lot of that uh, easy money that was just mm-hmm. flooded in the system has propelled security prices upward. And well, I mean, there's no doubt that that's a lot of where that money right. is found that weighs into assets. But that that sort of you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. You're reducing the future return of those assets if you're propping up their price with uh, with funding money, because they're now that much further ahead of their underlying fundamentals. I mean, earnings are going to have a hard time supporting current prices. And of course, we know interest rates and bonds are having a hard time producing, you know, they'd be yeah. having a hard time supporting a very robust return. The inflation adjusted, the real return mm-hmm. of bonds is almost certainly negative, which is extraordinary. And that's a huge piece of retirees' financial plan. And here it is guaranteed to lose money to inflation. We're really in unprecedented waters. And I, I saw personally with the use of the social security optimization software that we use the, you know, and it's developed by an economist and to have those changes in inflation rate and rate of return, like just, just like that, they usually, they look at them every six months, but there was a a time when it, um, it just happened in a, a couple of days and we were scurrying around because that gives all kinds of different problems for the training that we give. But um, it was a crazy time. Um, you know, I'm really interested to know how you came to be, because you get questions about Social Security, right? Where's that come from? Well, that's a good question. So I... Uh... I think maybe part of it is just biographical is I'm approaching, I'm 65. And so I think people look to me more for that, but more specifically, uh, one of the opportunities that opened up at Market Watch was writing for a newsletter called Retirement Weekly. And the column that I took the, I replaced who was writing that column before was Robert Powell, who, you know, right. a giant in the field. And so I'm, I'm, you know, struggling to fill his shoes and, uh, <laughs> So uh, I'm reminded over and over again that uh, the wise man is he who knows he knows nothing. And so it is so true. And Social Security is by far no exception to this, that, you know, the number of variables, as you know, and your programmer knows in trying to come up with that optimizer software is extraordinary. And the moment you might feel tempted to say this is always the case, you'll discover that it's not always the case. And uh, yeah, um, so. You know, I, I, you know, I'm glad that people like you and your organization, like your organization exists because it's so useful for people because it, the idea that they can learn this on their own is almost impossible. 
It is. I think the learning just goes on and on. I mean, I, I can't imagine. I, I learn things, new things every, every week or every day. And every case that I have, I mean, the strangest twists and turns and exceptions. Um, it, it's fascinating to me, but it's, it's pretty overwhelming. You, like you said, you don't, people don't even know what they don't know. And they don't know what questions to ask either. Well, that's right. It's so true. And this is back to my general theme of humility is that, uh, you know, Social Security in the grand scheme of things is a relatively predictable thing, right? Relatively. (laughs) Yeah. Trying to figure out what the optimal solution is for when to start claiming Social Security is itself incredibly complicated. Well, if you think about it, that being at the near the end of the spectrum of relatively predictable. What about the markets themselves, which are at the other end? And uh, um, so, you know, my general advice to clients is that, you know, in fact, uh, my column earlier this summer was about, uh, you know, that we need to focus on some of the more meaningful issues about what will make the difference to our retirement satisfaction. I quoted a study from uh, EBRI, the uh, the Employee Benefits Research Institute, oh, um, and they had broken down uh, retirees into five cohorts according to how many assets they had in retirement. And the bottom cohort, the ones that had the fewest assets and income, reported average satisfaction levels with the retirement that were much lower. But interestingly, the other four were almost the same, which is to say that once you're out of that really, you know, the, the worst 20%, give or take, right? Yeah. So as long as you, you, you've jumped over some low hurdle, additional money doesn't buy you happiness. And we always know that, that that is in large part true, but it's amazing how low the hurdle is. The description of the criteria to make it into that bottom cohort are really low. And yet interesting. getting out of that is important. That's one of the recommendations I make is, you know, insofar as you can supplement Social Security with an annuity and provide that kind of guarantee, that creates such calming effects on the anxiety oh. that otherwise have. I've found that with my clients, just knowing what their Social Security claiming decision will be and what annual amount that will result in, not the, ma- not the total um, over their lifetime, but the annual amount. And they just have such a sense of relief. And, uh, you know, they, they thought it was going to be so much worse. So it's wonderful to, to help them with that. Um, let's see. If based on your experience and knowledge, what are the top two or three most important takeaways that individuals approaching retirement and about claiming Social Security um, that they could they could learn from you? Well, I would say that the, the first one, which builds right on what we were saying, is you need to engage a qualified expert to help you on that Social Security decision. Um, you know, you hear the saying all along, you know, lots of fields, don't try this at home alone. And I'd say that's probably the case, even though I write for a newsletter that uh, presumably helps people decide how much they you know, or when and how much they should uh, respond to some of these questions. In the end, I I always recommend 
consult with somebody who who is uh, studied this, such as you and your organization, because you know there. As we were saying earlier, it's almost certain that you don't know everything you need to know. Yeah. Um, so that's uh, lesson number one. Um, but you know, insofar as you can supplement your income uh, rather than ask for Social Security earlier, I think that's probably one of the more even though I don't want to claim certainty on anything, that's probably a good rule of thumb. And uh, one thing that you know, I think is so wonderful about Social Security is that it is a guaranteed income. It will last as long as you live. And if you look at surveys of uh, retirees, their number one worry, at least in the surveys I saw, was outliving their money. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And... So uh, providing some anxiety relief on that score through an annuity um, is, is not a bad idea. Now, unfortunately, annuity rates are, are a function of where interest rates are. So annuity payout rates are not great right now. And it's, you can't get a social security, I mean, an annuity payout rate that's indexed to inflation. And so there are a number of problems with it. And I would say for every piece of advice I give to make sure you talk to an expert about social security, I double that or triple that when it comes to annuities yeah. because the fees are sometimes exorbitant and they're complicated and it's hard to compare. But again, the idea of, you know, if your top anxiety is outliving your money, reduce that anxiety. And uh, even if you're giving up, I mean, with an annuity, you're giving up the possibility of, you know, making a killing in the next Tesla or the next whatever GameStop stock. But in return, you're not losing sleep at night over losing so much in your portfolio and, uh, and outliving your money. And uh, again, especially given that EBRI survey results showing that happiness or satisfaction with your retirement is so, you know, it's uncorrelated really with the amount of assets and income you have. Yeah. I'd say that we just need to, I mean, I guess this is my other lesson. Just don't forget what's really important. You know, you might think, dying too early would be a bigger worry, right? But if you're worried about running out of your money, you're, you have a greater worry of living too long. It's so ironic that we've come to this. And so, uh, um, you know, I just think people need to uh, remember what's important. Yes, I couldn't say it better. Um, wrapping up here, is there anything um, that you've learned or discovered or uh, experienced that would surprise people? Oh my gosh. Well, it can be about, well, it can be about work, but about anything. I, my last guest was uh, a mountaineer. So he shared about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I, uh, you know, I don't know how much it might surprise people, but it gets back to this question of how unknowable the future is. And, uh, you know, that that can veer off in in semi-spiritual directions, right? We just have to um, trust uh, in the future, not because the future always works out. So I'm not talking about a blind faith that there's right. a room for that, I think, in some parts of our lives too. But in this case, we can't control it anyway. So I'm trying to think of a good analogy. I'm with my daughter who has high anxiety about college. You know, I'll, uh, I'll try to remind her she can't control everything, right? And it's the same thing I tell retirees, we can't control everything. And in fact, we can control very little. And the things that we can control have to do with more how we live our lives. 
we definitely can't control the markets. And uh, so I think there's a certain release and surrender that comes, not because you're giving up, but because you're recognizing we can't control everything. And so the problem I'd say that goes with it, the other side of the coin, is a lot of retirees spend an enormous amount of time uh, investing in the markets or trying to play the markets. And it may be that that's because it's fun and intellectually challenging and they otherwise don't have anything to do. And I say, all power <laughs> to you if you want to do that. But don't kid yourself that that's the way to, uh, you know, to retirement riches. I mean, it's possible that you'll win the lottery too. But uh, another column I wrote earlier, I'm going way off on a tangent here, but another column I wrote earlier was that uh, how uh, average 401k balances at, at Vanguard have grown over the last decade. And it turns out it's almost a one-to-one correspondence with how the markets have done. And so, you know, you have people who are playing the market on a day-to-day basis. You have people who are buy and hold. Um, Doesn't matter. The correlation with the markets is overwhelming. And if the markets are not as robust a performer over the next 10 or 20 years, which I think my own bet is that they will be a lot less than we've seen over the last 20 years, then it doesn't matter what you do. You're, you're yeah. not going to be able to control that, but that was going to greatly affect your returns. Um, one solution to that, again, suggested by my wife, the clinical psychologist, is to uh, divide your portfolio up into uh, what's sometimes referred to as a permanent portfolio and a variable portfolio. This is following the the distinction that was made by Harry Brown, who was a newsletter editor I followed in the 80s and 90s. But he recognized that most of the time when we play around with our money, we make things worse. So what you do is you take the bulk of your money and put it in whatever your retirement plan, you and your financial planner have worked out. Don't touch it. Then you have your play money. Go to town with your play money, but recognize that the odds are overwhelming that you're going to be worse off. But you aren't making your retirement standard of living vulnerable to making a big mistake. And so, uh, you know, just recognize what you're in it for. I mean, you would never claim you're going to go invest everything in a lottery and call it your retirement financial plan, right? But um, a lot of people are engaged in the markets in a very gambling fashion. And I'm afraid they're going to find that at some point the markets catch up with them. Yeah. And it's really how we react to the circumstances as we move forward into retirement too. It's um, things are going to happen. They're going to be difficult. Some are going to be wonderful, but um, you've mentioned many times about the panic and anxiety and, and it's really, how do you react to those circumstances? Well, that's right. I mean, retirement, I think we can look at it as a wonderful time in our lives and it is, and it teaches us and, or we learn in the process um, just what you said is that uh, you know, we learn to accept what comes along and make the most of it. So what we can control is our response. Uh-huh. Uh, we can't control the world, but we can control our response. Anyway, this gets far into my my wife's standard. I mean, uh, my wife's expertise rather than uh, well than in finance. But I think the intersection of psychology and behavioral economics and the markets is a huge intersection there. And you you have all of that covered as a couple. That's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) So I think we need to conclude here. Uh, Where can people go to follow you or find out more about your work, get in touch with you? 
Well, I'd say the, the, the major, I write for a number of different publications, but uh, 90% of them or so are on MarketWatch. So if you just go to marketwatch.com and search on my name, okay. um, you'll, uh, you'll bring up all the columns that I've written. Um, and uh, my email is available at the bottom of every column. So that may be the easiest way just to go to the column and click on my email at the bottom and ask me any question. I'd be happy to see if I have anything to offer. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been really wonderful. Well, my pleasure. Thanks. It was a, it was a fun conversation. Thanks, Mark.